0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today, we'll look at spending in Wisconsin prisons and how we compare to neighboring states. Then we'll speak with a Marquette professor about his new book that blends conservation with history.
1: I hope it inspires people to love their local natures as much as they love the wild natures of Yosemite or Colorado or anything that Americans tend to think of as wilderness.
0: Plus, we'll learn about Food Journeys, a research project-turned-art exhibit that explores how Milwaukeeans relate to the food system.
2: What our exhibit did was sort of kind of do an overview of like what people are saying, capturing these like kind of small, moments um, and making it more human.
0: All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. The Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors approved an outside audit of the Milwaukee County Jail this week. The audit will look into several deaths that have occurred at the jail over the last 18 months and suggest policy changes and solutions. Wisconsin spends more per capita on its prison than any of its neighboring states. It has the highest black imprisonment rate in the country. And right now, Wisconsin prisons are housing about 4,000 more people than they have room for. A report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum highlights these trends and some policy changes that could help. Jason Stein is the research Director at the Wisconsin Policy Forum, and he speaks with Lake Effect Sam Woods about these findings. Stein begins by explaining how Wisconsin's overall incarceration rate differs from our neighboring states. Wisconsin
3: has a higher incarceration rate than any of its neighboring states and also than the national average. Now our our neighboring states are generally below the national average in terms of their imprisonment rates, but but we are above it. Uh, we imprison about 344 inmates for every 100,000 people in the state, and that's compared to you know a national rate of about 316, and our, our rate is is more than double. Let's say what it is in Minnesota, which would be the, have the lowest rate of our neighbors. Because of that, we also spend quite a bit more because obviously your your spending on prisons and corrections is very tightly tied to how many people do you have behind bars. And in Wisconsin, the spending is, again, higher than our neighbors, higher than the national average. We spend about $220 per year on corrections for every state resident. So $220 per capita, the national average is about 182. Uh, Again, we spend about twice as much as per capita as what Minnesota does.
4: You you mentioned per capita spending here in Wisconsin, but overall, I think in the report, it said 7.3% of the entire state budget um, is dedicated dedicated to corrections. The Department of Corrections does operate 37 prisons. There are about uh, a little over 21,000 people incarcerated in Wisconsin prisons um, as of August 2023. So, it's a lot to spend some money on, but as you mentioned, it's a lot more than than our than our neighbors. On the note of comparing Wisconsin to neighboring states, the report also mentions that there's a particularly stark racial breakdown of incarceration rates in Wisconsin, um, particularly for black residents having a much higher incarceration rate uh, than white residents of Wisconsin. Um, do we see similar racial breakdowns of uh, incarceration in neighboring states?
3: Sure. We have the highest black imprisonment rate of any state in the country. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're higher than all states, and obviously, including our neighbors. Um, if you look at that rate in Wisconsin, it's a little under 12 times that of the rate of imprisonment for white Wisconsinites. And so that gap, that black-white disparity in Wisconsin is the third highest of, of any state in the country. Again, it, w- it would be substantially higher than, than our neighbors
4: shifting gears a bit to speak about uh, conditions within Wisconsin's prisons. So um, for several years now, people incarcerated within Wisconsin's jails and prisons, as well as activists and people who were formerly incarcerated uh, within Wisconsin, have been calling attention to uh, conditions there, uh, particularly pointing to a lack of medical and mental health care uh, across the board, across uh, Wisconsin's prisons, leading in recent years to people dying while incarcerated in Wisconsin's prisons, as well as a lack of time spent outside of cells, uh, particularly at Waupon Correctional where people incarcerated there have been on lockdown now for months. And the Wisconsin Policy Forum's report touches on a few reasons why conditions at Wisconsin prisons have gotten so bad, Um, one of which is something that we've heard from the Department of Corrections statewide as well as the Sheriff's Office locally, um, is that there is currently a staffing shortage within Wisconsin prisons. But the report also mentions um, overpopulation in Wisconsin prisons being an issue. In the report, uh, you all mentioned that Wisconsin's prisons have a capacity of 17,500 inmates. And currently, as of this summer, there were 21,500 inmates uh, incarcerated in Wisconsin's prisons. So not only is there a lack of uh, trained correctional officers within prisons, but the prisons themselves are housing about 20% more inmates than they uh, have the capacity to. So Jason, can you talk a little bit about this dynamic between staffing shortages and overpopulation and what it means for conditions within Wisconsin's prisons?
3: A couple of things I think we could we can say about the prisons are one, it's not only that they're over capacity, but many of them are very old. You know, I mean, Waupun was built parts of Waupun were built I think pre-Civil War. You know, some of Green Bay was also built in the 19th century. So not it's not only it's not the case that these are in every instance state of the art institutions that just happen to be run with more inmates than they were designed to have they're also in many cases very old and so they don't necessarily have the systems in place and the design in place that would allow them to be run in a better manner for both staff and inmates. And then you add on to that, you know, we sort of talked about the impact of um, the overtime and the staff vacancies on the staff, but there's also a lot of wear and tear on the inmates who are within the institution. Because what have you got to do when you don't have adequate staffing? You've got to limit the movement of inmates because you don't have the staff that you need to implement the proper security protocols associated with the movement. And then that can eat into the recreation and enrichment activities that the inmates can have, the programming they can receive, um, you know, potentially the contact that they might have with the outside world in some instances, and you know, medical care perhaps in some instances. And so that's going to have an impact on the morale of the inmates and, and, and potentially the ease in which you can, you can run the institution. So again, there may not be any other option for the people who are running the institution in the short term, but it's not, it's, it just adds to those sustainability challenges for the overall institution to go week after week or month after month with, you know, limits like that in place. So that is part of also what is, what is driving this. Um, And then, you know, as we look to the overall system, again, when we look at what our prison population is and we think about, you know, what our prison institutions are, um, another challenge is that if inmate levels remain relatively high, um, we're going to need to replace some of these these aging institutions, I mean, which are, they're beyond aging. They're, you know, in many cases, quite old. And there would be a really significant capital cost to that. You know, so far, we've just been talking about the day-to-day, year-to-year cost of operating the prisons that we have. But, you know, to the extent we have to renovate or rebuild Existing institutions, there's a substantial cost to taxpayers with that.
4: So a significant driver to uh, current overcapacity in Wisconsin's prisons that's mentioned in the report is revocations. And so, in a broad sense, revocations just refers to someone returning to prison. So they had spent some time in prison, were let out, and then now come back in. Um, but this can happen for a number of reasons. It can happen because you know they're convicted of another crime, but it can also happen for Uh, like technical violations of parole. And in 2021, the state made some changes to its revocation policy that led to a decrease in people returning to prison without committing another crime. But Jason, can you talk about revocations and their role in uh, Wisconsin's prison system?
3: Revocations as a whole are, which can be either for uh, new crimes or as you say, technical, you know, violations, which, you know, in in past years, could be things like failing to abide by substance abuse uh, requirements, things like that, had been a substantial, you know, in, contributor to um, the admissions of prisons. You know, in in some years, let's in the 2000s, as much as 43 percent, or more than two out of five people who were coming into a prison system were not doing so. You know, on the bait. You know, we're not individuals who were off of supervision, who had just committed a, a crime for the first time. They were individuals who had been uh, released from prison, back into the community, and then, based on something that that they had done, and a determination that had been made by the corrections agency, they were returned to a state institution, and so that has been. You know something that has drawn the attention of many policy analysts, including uh, the Wisconsin Policy Forum, as something that, you know, is an avenue that's really contributing to more people being in the correction system, and also potentially a detriment to public safety because revocations are associated with with some violation of a rule, and so looking for ways to to lower or reduce those revocations over time, you know, to ensure that people can continue to be part of the community, become part of the workforce. And at the same time, um, you know, the, the rules are also kept and, you know, public safety is maintained as well.
0: Jason Stein is the research director at the Wisconsin Policy Forum. He spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods when the report came out last year. A Marquette University professor has released his first novel. It's called Dry Land. And it tells the story of a Wisconsin conservationist who learns he has the gift of growing plants by touch. Dr. Ben Plattick teaches British romantic literature and creative writing at Marquette. He joins WUWM's Susan Bentz to talk about the book. He begins by describing the main characters in the novel.
1: The book has three main characters. Lead of the book's name is Rand Brandt. He is a young 22-year-old forester who works in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, and he discovers that he has the magical power to grow plants with a touch, and then quickly thereafter discovers that all of his plants die very quickly. He's a devoted conservationist and wants to preserve, in particular, Clearwater Marsh, which was a marsh based on the real Horicon Marsh that was dredged Early on in his life and he would really like to restore it. So he's our lead. His best friend is Yana she is a socialist, journalist, cartoonist who desperately wants to escape her life in the United States and flee to Paris, which she sees as a better, queerer, freer place. Um, And she has to learn that sometimes going to another location isn't the thing that is going to change your life for you. And then finally, uh, Rand's love interest is a man named Gabriel, who is a wealthy violinist from a Mexican American family in the Southwest who has fallen out with his family and desperately wants to play violin at some kind of major orchestra um, and spends the book trying to realize this dream.
5: This is woven into the World War One era. Ex- explain that just a little bit and just to be clear I don't want to spend tons of time on the book itself because there's so much want to learn about your writing and your teaching but it's a fascinating book and as a reader I really felt it took twists and turns that I didn't anticipate which I'm sure is part of what you were after.
1: Yes. So should I address World War One or the twists and turns? <laughs>
5: Let, oh gosh. Let's go war into the twists and turns.
1: Yes. So they are actually related. Um, so I do love reading World War One fiction, either fiction written during the war or historical fiction written about the war. Of which the best, I think, is a trilogy by Pat Barker called the Regeneration trilogy. She's British. I wanted to write a World War I novel because I'm fascinated by the time period. Uh, the early 20th century was a watershed moment in history because it reconfigured the social, cultural, and political landscape of the entire world. There were nations that didn't exist before World War I that existed afterward. And in a very real way, the configurations of what we know as modernity were set by what happened during and after the war. And I think that's very interesting. However, there are also about a bajillion books about people being sad in the trenches, and so I didn't want to write another one of those. I am also very interested in the history of conservation and the history of forestry. And a few years ago when I was just reading around, I think it must have been related to reading Aldo Leopold's biography, because I am also very interested in the conservation history of Wisconsin, I discovered that during World War I there was The largest regiment that the U.S. sent over to Europe was a regiment of foresters, not fighters, and their job was to cut down all the trees in France to build bridges and piles and fortifications in trenches, and I found this fascinating. And so as I was gathering material together for the book, I thought, how interesting would it be to focus on this element of the war that basically no one has ever written into fiction um, and yet was enormously important for how the war happened. World War One, people frequently say, is a war that was won and lost on materials rather than technology or fighting. It was a war of attrition. Uh, people fought until they ran out of food and materials and that included people. Uh, but trees were also an important material and so I wanted to look at how... Um, forestry was an important element of the war uh, as a broader way of looking at all of the stories that don't usually get told about World War One, while still telling a story about this incredibly important time in world history.
5: So I'm just wondering, Ben, have those key characters whom you described, do you think of them today as close family or distant relatives or neither?
1: They still all live in my head and it's fun because they're all, I'm 38 and they are all 22 so it is like having a bunch of not rambunctious kids, but a bunch of people who represent earlier stages of the way that I myself understood the world, hanging out in my head and pointing out to me what I used to think. And that is really interesting. One of the writing challenges for me in this book was writing believable 22-year-olds. I didn't want them to read as teenagers who didn't know about themselves, but I also didn't want them to read as 30-somethings who had been through life a little bit and learned to accept what they had learned about themselves in their 20s. I I feel like your 20s is the decade where you're figuring out who you are are and your 30s is a decade where you hopefully learn to accept it so they're figuring it out but they haven't accepted it yet and those are interesting voices to have in your head once you have accepted yourself more as as I have because I'm close to 40 at this point
5: does Rand stick with you most those passions that he wanted to make a difference and then came to realize in a really difficult way what he could do and what he should do.
1: Yes, I would say that a lot of Rand's ideals and impulses are also my own ideals and impulses. His desire to save the world by himself, which is a bad idea, Uh, you cannot save the world by yourself ever, and... uh, Figuring saving the world into a heroic myth often does more harm than good, but it's still incredibly compelling, and even though I wrote a book that is very skeptical of that ideal, I still feel its pull in the way that Rand does, and a lot of his neuroses and self-hatreds and personality problems are unfortunately also mine, and I'm aware of that in a way that he only begins to be over the course of the book. So yes, uh, he is very close to me.
5: You've told me of multiple interests and in that your teaching is evolving. So when did nature, when did the environment? Was that part of your being as a little kid?
1: Absolutely, it was. Rand's love of swamps is my love of swamps. My favorite kind of landscape is a wetland. So I, I moved to Wisconsin about a decade ago. Uh, to my great surprise, there is an enormous and beautiful wetland complex all over the state. There's many different types of wetlands here. There are marshes, there are fens, there are bogs, and I fell in love with those in the same way that I have fallen in love with all of the wetlands that I've encountered in my life. And this does go all the way back to my childhood. I spent my youth mapping the boggy forest behind my house in little, literally, mapping?
5: L- literally mapping?
1: Literally <laughs> mapping. I gave all of the little and, you know, this is, this is a forest that is maybe two acres wide, and it backs on to some farm fields, but it was magical for me. I just spent, you know, countless hours out there naming the various tussocks of grass that poked up through the water. <laughs> um, and uh, I have loved wetlands ever since, and I don't know why. There's just something magical about a landscape that ought to be dry that is covered by water, and all of the life forms there have to adapt to that coverage.
5: In the path that you've taken as a as a professional, then how did that factor in? I mean, was that in any part factoring into your teaching others to write?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, and the nature love goes all the way back to my choice of, of discipline when I first entered grad school. I mean, that's a little bit of a lie. I started off as a medievalist, but I quickly became a romanticist. Uh, and uh, the romantic era in British poetry was what I wrote my dissertation and first book on. And it's the era that if not gave birth to, strengthened and solidified many of the conceptions and misconceptions that the Anglophone West now holds about what nature is and means. So for example, the idea that nature and humans are separate, nature is inhuman and sacred and healing, are all ideas that are coming squarely out of the Romantic period, and they're ideas that have been both useful and problematic for conservation. And so I love Romantic poetry because it is— so much of it is so invested in loving nature in the way that I do, even as I'm skeptical of some elements of that love. So I started off by teaching Romantic poetry, and on the side I was writing creatively, and then as I got towards tenure, the creative writing became much more essential to the way that I understand myself and my role at Marquette and my role as a, an academic in the world. And so my career is now more based in creative writing. And as a result of that, I have begun to teach creative writing to students. And The Nature Love is, is always there, uh, but it is part of the intellectual genealogy that led me to teach creative writing rather than a kind of direct one-to-one And I I didn't feel comfortable really stepping into the classroom to teach creative writing until I had published a number of short stories and had a novel that I knew was going to be published.
5: One of the, the things that struck me, Ben, was that depending on the setting, how devastated a given landscape might be where Rand found himself, the description of everything from the bottoms up, the squirrels, the birds, the plants that might be budding. Do you have that all like stored in your head, all of these ecosystems?
1: Not constantly, all the time. (laughs) I
5: mean,
1: do you have to look things up or is it all in there somewhere in your brain? Oh, I've had to look so many things up. I, I wish it was all in my brain. And I know that if a proper trained ecologist reads this book, they are going to find errors. And I'm constantly aware of that. But I did a lot of reading and a lot of walking around, so I read a number of books on Wisconsin landscapes and the plants and animals that belong there, both contemporary and historical. There is a a magisterial book by, uh, I believe his last name is Curtis, uh, called The Vegetation of Wisconsin from the 1950s that talks about the various plant landscapes that and the plant communities that would have been found in Wisconsin in the early 20th century. And they're not exactly the same as what it looks like now because we've had a lot of destruction and a lot of change since then. So I was trying to balance with what I saw on my own hikes in the Baraboo area, which is where a lot of the book's final scenes take place, with historical accounts of what nature used to look like there. And that came together in a kind of melange that I hope is at least convincing as fiction even if I know there must be ecological mistakes in there.
5: What do you hope readers take from your book? What's your hope for the influence the book might have?
1: That is such an interesting question and my knee jerk response as a literary critic is to say once the book leaves an author's hands it's out in the world and I don't get to prescribe people's relationship to it. That being said of course we all have hopes for our books. And if I had to specify mine, I would say that I hope it inspires people to love their local natures as much as they love the wild natures of Yosemite or Colorado or anything that Americans tend to think of as wilderness, which is wonderful and ought to be preserved. But dry land is grounded in a love for the stuff that's in our backyard and that doesn't get celebrated as much. It's hard to celebrate a swamp. They're kind of flat and boggy and hard to navigate, but I think they're incredibly beautiful and important to preserve. And wetlands, and here's where I'm putting on my conservationist hat for just a second, wetlands are one of the types of landscape that are the most easily destroyed and being destroyed at the most rapid rate in the U.S., and there's a ton of them in Wisconsin. So I hope that people take out of my book a willingness to love the nature that is in their backyard, even nature that doesn't seem pure. I hope they also take out of it a good story about why heroism is both attractive and a problem.
0: Dr. Ben Pladek is an associate professor of English at Marquette University and the author of a new novel called Dry Land. You can read a short excerpt of it at wuwm.com. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn about an art exhibit that explores how Milwaukeeans link food and trust. But first, we'll hear from a Milwaukee judge who is part of the first generation of kids desegregating a Southern school district. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. To Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. In its landmark 1954 decision in Brown v. Board of Education, the U.S. Supreme Court found school segregation unconstitutional. But the path to desegregating schools hasn't been straightforward. In the following decades, states that had resisted desegregation were forced to follow the law. New segregation academies popped up in small towns throughout the South like Leland, Mississippi, a town of about 6,000 people in the Mississippi Delta. Leland's experience desegregating its public schools is the subject of a recent documentary from PBS called The Harvest. It features a number of the students who are part of the first generation of kids desegregating schools, including Pam Pepper, a U.S. District Court judge for the Eastern District of Wisconsin. Pepper was one of the few white students who returned to Leland's public schools, and she joins me to talk about her experience in the documentary. One of the questions I had just as somebody who grew up in a very small town here in Wisconsin, during the docu series, both you and the other people featured in the, in this series really paint this as a is a black and white culture. And it seems so odd having grown up in such a small town be, because I can't quite picture that. When when you were growing up there, was the town itself very segregated? People just lived on one side or the or the other?
6: Yes. it was physically segregated. The town has um, a beautiful creek that sort of bisects it going one direction, and there's a railroad track that bisects it going perpendicular. So the town's almost just in quadrants, if you will. And when I was growing up, for the most part, White people lived on one side of the railroad track creek divide, and and black people lived on another. And as best I can tell, since I've been back as an adult, it is still that way. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh,
0: Growing up, uh, you initially in elementary school went to um, something we now kind of call segregation academies. Uh, These were schools that popped up Pretty quickly after Mississippi and I believe other states were forced to desegregate their schools. What was it like going to one of these segregation academies?
6: It's a little bit hard to answer that question because keep in mind, um, I started first grade in the 1970 school year. Brown versus Board of Education was decided in 1954. Mississippi managed to resist integration for 16 years until finally there was a Supreme Court case that directly said to Mississippi, you have to do it and you have to do it now. So I went into first grade that year. I had no consciousness of any of that. I just went to school where I got dropped off to go to school. And as you pointed out, it was a very tiny town. And so a lot of the kids I went to school with at the quote-unquote academy, the white school were kids I knew from my neighborhood and kids I played with when I was little. I remember the the physical geography of it because it was out on the highway. There wasn't any landscaping. It was all kind of dusty and dirty surrounding it. Um, We weren't near anything, really. My recollection is, and I could be wrong, but my recollection is that there had been some sort of either tractor storage facility or it had been something else. It had been, the building had been... I thought something else, and it got turned quickly into a school.
0: Now, your your parents decided to, after elementary school, move you into the public school system. At this point, um, in in Leland, the public schools were almost entirely black. Uh, the vast it, it seems like the vast majority of um, white students had gone to these academies or is that not?
6: I wouldn't say almost entirely black. By the time I went to middle school, which is when I went to the public school, I would say probably maybe 18 to 20 percent white and 80 percent black. So a lot of white families had sent their kids to the academies uh, or to, to parochial schools. But there were more white students in the public school at that time than I think there are now. Well, yeah,
0: when it came to the schools themselves, something that is talked about in the docu series is that there was, of course, this requirement to desegregate the schools in theory. Of course, we have these segregation academies that pop up, but even inside the schools themselves, it seemed like there was still some level of segregation, whether it was, you know, creating different reading classes um in which kids would end up being segregated or having segregated dances and, and things
6: of that ilk. What was that like? You're sort of asking about two separate things. The different classes that you're talking about, that happened at the elementary school level. I was not a part of that because I was not at the public school at that time. The separate dances and things that was more, you know, nobody ever said black and white kids aren't going to go to dances together. Or black and white kids after the football game on Friday night are going to go to two different places to hang out. It was not dictated. It was not required by the schools or anything of that nature. That's the part that I look back on, I think, in some respects with the most regret because it just, nobody really questioned it. It just was what it was. Football game got over and everybody slapped everybody on the back and waved and then The black kids, you know, went over to where they went and the white kids went to where they went. I didn't ever invite a black friend over to first spend the night, you know. And I look back now and think, why not? We sat together for eight, nine hours a day. We did sports together. We did extracurricular activities together. I had friends. And yet that friendship stopped as soon as the school activities stopped. As one person said in the film, over the summers, you know, we hardly saw each other at all. And it wasn't. It, it wasn't like anybody decided it or said it. It just was the way it was. And I that that I look back on with a tremendous amount of regret. That that I wish I had just looked over one day and said, "Do you want to come over to my house after school?" And <laughs> seen what happened. One of the things you've mentioned is Leland today
0: is in some ways more segregated. We, of course, also live in a city that has hyper-segregated schools. In some ways, it feels like your generation in Leland was part of this kind of grand experiment that, for a variety of reasons, kind of failed. We continue to have hyper-segregated schools um, in places like Leland and uh, in our community here in Milwaukee. How do you view what happened with your generation growing up in the context of this larger conversation about desegregating schools and and the continued necessity for it?
6: It's hard to answer. I've thought a lot about it since I was asked to participate in in the documentary. The person who made it was a classmate of mine from grade school. And on a micro level, how do I view it? I view my experience as pure dumb luck. It, It was a wonderful thing for me. Junior high and high school were wonderful for me. And I was lucky enough to be fairly oblivious to how unique that experience was, how fraught it was in other places uh, at the same time. Sometimes I was so oblivious that I didn't quite realize that there were tensions around me that, that I just wasn't aware of. But I will always be grateful for that experience and what gifts it gave me of you know, just learning that being around people who are different than you is a good thing, and it can it enriches your life. But on a broader scale, I, I've thought a lot about, you know, what didn't work? Was it the fact that having people sit together next to each other in class for eight hours a day, but then not having them interact in some of the most important aspects of their lives, their families, their churches, their their social activities— Was that a forecast for doom, that you can't just kind of force it in one false construct? It has to be somewhere else? I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the housing piece was not going along with the school piece. If people are living in separate communities, and I wonder sometimes if that's not a Milwaukee issue as well for our community, that if people are living in different communities... They are going to want to go to school in their community. They're going to want to go to school with other people who they know who've had the same experience that they have had. And maybe that's racially motivated, but maybe it's just, this is what's familiar to me. My parents went to this school. Their parents went to this school. And if those communities are separate, then the schools are going to be separate. And I honestly don't know. And, you know, Wisconsin's been through so many iterations of... There was desegregation, and then there was a suburban desegregation litigation. There's been lots of litigation around voucher schools. People come at it from 8 million different directions, and yet the problem persists, and it makes you wonder if there's something more deep-seated or more, more rooted than just we've got white people and black people in the same school together for Monday through Friday. Does there need to be something more than that? Do we need to reach each other? in some way beyond that, and interact with each other in some way beyond that, and I I don't know what the, I wish I knew what the answer is. Um, I sure don't.
0: I think if you had the answer, uh, you'd be a very rich person. I think, (laughs) I I
6: think I would consider uh, some life work to have been done, yes.
0: (laughs) Well, Pam, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing your experiences.
6: Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to talk about it and I hope that people will will watch The Harvest, Uh, not so much because of my participation, but Doug Blackman and Sam Pollard did a lot of work over a lot of years and it's an effort of love on their part, so I hope people will watch it.
0: Judge Pam Pepper is a U.S. District Court judge for the Eastern District of Wisconsin and one of the subjects of the PBS documentary The Harvest. You can find a link to the full film at wuwm.com. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find the link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. We'll tell you about an art exhibit at the Milwaukee Winter Farmers Market that explores how food and trust intersect next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Throughout last summer, fellows at UW-Milwaukee's Center for 21st Century Studies set out to interview 200 Milwaukeeans about their relationship with food and the food system. Their questions focused on food access, how people get their food, and how people associate food and trust. Instead of going the traditional academic route and putting their findings in a research paper, UWM commissioned Milwaukee-based artists to turn their findings into an interactive exhibition, which opened at the Milwaukee Winter Farmers Market in November. Lake Effect's Sam Woods speaks with artists and researchers to learn more about the project and what they found.
4: It's Thursday evening, which for me usually means that I'm at the grocery store. You can tell what kind of week I'm having based on what's on my list. If it's been a smooth week, I have a full list built around two to three big meals that I want to make and eat throughout the next week, supplemented by what I already have at home. If it's been a rough week, I'm probably coming in with no list at all, and only a vague recollection of what I already have at home, which to be honest is maybe about 50% accurate at best. During these weeks that I'm not coming in with a plan, my grocery store experience is more emotional. Unlike the logical list ticking of a good week, I'm visiting every aisle looking up and down for inspiration in a store that I've probably been to dozens of times. And the ingredients I choose usually comes down to whether I want to head into the week comfortable or excited. Should I choose ingredients for comfort meals that I've had a thousand times and know what to expect? Or maybe something that I haven't tried before that could be great or could be disappointing. In the end, it comes down to do I trust myself to make a new dish that I will enjoy? Do I trust that ingredients I haven't used before will behave the way I want them to in the kitchen? And do I trust that these ingredients have been handled properly, from farm and processing, to transit, to store, to my home? A new art exhibition at the Milwaukee Winters Farmers Market looks at the emotional decisions behind food, food access, and daily nourishment in our city. Named Food Journeys, the exhibition is an artistic interpretation stemming from 200 interviews of Milwaukeeans done throughout the summer of 2023. Jessica Thompson is a master's student studying sustainable peace building at UWM and was one of the StoryCart fellows collecting interviews last summer for this project. I asked her about her excursions and what she and the other fellows asked people about their relationship with food and trust.
7: Yeah, so the questions that we asked, um, we started very simply, like, where do you most commonly gather your food? Um, and the work behind that question was to understand... Um, how long it takes for people to get food, um, where they typically go. It was more of um, just like a a question to kind of get people warmed up to talking to us because the heart of the project was in trust, right?
4: I should back up and paint a picture. When Jessica and the other StoryCart fellows from the UW-Milwaukee Center for 21st Century Studies were going around asking people about their connections to the food system, They weren't doing so with a notebook in hand and ready to transcribe notes for an academic paper. No, they were going around in what they call the story cart, which is a mobile recording studio the team used to document these interviews. The goal was not to present themselves as academics or experts looking to study a problem, but as people, looking for connection and understanding for how their neighbors feel about food and the food system. Their summer-long travels took them to 50 locations in and around Milwaukee with whiteboards and voice recorders in tow, and they collected around 200 recorded interviews, with questions ranging from how do you get your food to what is a food you think about when you think about trust? And the stories they collected ran the gamut, from hard topics like transportation barriers to food access to softer topics like favorite meals. Here's a clip from an interview at the Sherman Park grocery store with Jazz, who said she walks for hours, sometimes by choice, to find the food she likes.
8: Where do you often grocery shop? Pick and Save. Pick and Save? Is this your first time to Sherman Park Grocery? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Now, um, since you go to Pick and Save more often, can you tell me in as much detail as possible your journey to and from Pick and Save? Like, are you driving? Are you walking? Taking the bus? How long? Does, how far? I'm walking and always carrying bags. Okay. And how long is your walk? Uh, probably like three hours. But, I, don't, you know, it's like I'm, I used to run tracks when I was a little kid. So, walk. so you're walking three hours to the grocery store? Yes, ma'am. Are you doing that multiple times a week? Yes, ma'am. Wow. Every ninth of the month. Every ninth of the month? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, is there a specific reason that you go um, every ninth of the month? Yes, yeah, for like for my wick, for my son. He's one years old. And for my mom, because my mom still across the street. And I do a little PCW work and, you know. Okay, so now I'm I'm going to move away from this question, but let me delve deeper into this. So three hours walk, that's what's getting me. So is that your preference or is there not a bus route around where you are? It's the bus. I take the bus, but I, I like to walk a lot. And there's like side, adequate sidewalks and stuff. Yeah, make sure that I stay out the sun, shade. do a zigzag home. <laughs> okay.
4: When questions about food and trust came up, Jessica said usually people needed a moment to think about their connection between trust and food, oftentimes before turning to a favorite comfort meal. Here's a clip from an interview at the Bayview Outpost with Meg, who remembers a childhood dish her family called
8: Slum Gully. And when you think of trust, what is a taste or recipe that comes to mind? When I think of what? Trust. Trust? When I think of trust, the recipe that first comes to mind is a dish my mom made called slum gully. It was something that no matter what you could rely on to taste good and to make you feel good, no matter what, no matter what time of day, it could be 8 a.m. And it's the most simple thing I realized once I grew up, which is just beef, noodles, and tomatoes. And as a child, that brought us together. And when that meal was made, I. I trusted that it was going to be a good day.
4: (laughs) As I mentioned, the goal was never to produce an academic paper about food access or Milwaukee's food system. Instead, the StoryCart fellows turned over their interviews to Milwaukee-based artists Katie Avila-Lockmiller and Adam white Osers to create an artistic interpretation of the interviews. As Katie explains, while a research paper is excellent for understanding the facts of a situation, art tends to be an easier access point for people to engage with the research.
2: Yeah, they could have just collected these stories, the themes and said, you know, in this part of Milwaukee, people are traveling really far to their grocery store, this, you know, and like kind of broken into these box in structures. But I think what our exhibit did was sort of kind of do an overview of like what people are saying, capturing these like kind of small moments um, and making it more human.
4: And unlike a formal research paper, Responding to an art exhibition is something anyone can do. You don't need formal training. You just need to have something to say. So Katie and Adam included an interactive portion of the exhibit that allowed visitors to react to the stories the StoryCart fellows collected, adding to their growing mosaic of Milwaukee's feelings towards food and food access.
2: We also had like a, in, a little interactive piece where we were like asked people to share their own stories, right? And it was interesting to to see people's immediate reactions um, being able to make their own artwork in reaction to our, or our artwork in reaction to the stories, right? And so then that conversation keeps going.
4: I should note that Katie, Adam, and UWM did not create this exhibition alone. True School, an arts and hip-hop-based youth education nonprofit, contributed their own artistic interpretations of stories collected by the story cart. The Milwaukee Food Council partnered on the project, as did Latinas Unidas en las Artes, or LUNA, a business co-founded by Avila Locke-Miller that supports Latinx artists in Milwaukee. And the exhibition is hosted at the table, which is also the site of the Milwaukee Winter Farmer's Market. The inclusion of such a broad range of perspectives and talents means a lot to Adam white Osers. For one, he noted that because the exhibition is hosted in the same building as the Farmer's Market, gives him a built-in excuse to revisit the exhibition regularly, to reflect on its themes while also being able to talk to vendors selling food there, further building trust between him and his food. That kind of built-in next step is something that is difficult to pull from a research paper, but comes more naturally
1: with art. Something a mentor told me long ago is, the objective of contemporary art is to have us learn something new about the world or ourselves. So, yeah, why art, like, and, and like, that's like, why we like watching plays and TV, because we can see ourselves. Um, a report is facts, and art is feeling, um, so that that access point is important to me as an artist, that we can feel our way through something.
4: And for Jessica Thompson, one of the StoryCart fellows we met at the beginning who conducted interviews for the project, feeling your way through something can help point you in the direction of what needs to change. By viewing an exhibition like this, where the joys and the frustrations of food and food access live together, she hopes it helps people digest where our food system does and does not serve us and what we can do to bring trust back to our food system.
7: I hope that people begin to question and think about their place in the food system, question the ways that they access food, Or not necessarily question, but um, maybe think deep more deeply about. And um, I hope it like provokes a bigger conversation around the food system itself and how we can change the food system to better meet the needs of people in the city, Um, because I feel that the food system we have right now is failing a lot of people. And um, I think this exhibit is a way to provoke conversation around uh, what's not working and what can we change? What do we have the power to change? And if we don't have the power to change what needs to be, how do we get to that point?
4: For Lake Effect, I'm Sam Woods.
0: That was Jessica Thompson, a StoryCart fellow and graduate student studying sustainable peace building at UW-Milwaukee. Katie Avila-Lockmiller is the co-founder and creative director at Latinas Unidas las Arts. And Adam white Osers is a Milwaukee-based multimedia artist. They spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Join us again tomorrow at noon for another Lake Effect on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.